What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Sam Dunks, the weekly NBA show over here at Slab Stocks. I'm your host, Sam, and today I am livid, and I'll get to that in a minute. All right, so all-star rosters were announced the other day. They are starting out east. Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Bradley Beal, Joel Embiid, and Kyrie Irving. There's your five starters out east, all of them deserving. Out west, their starters are LeBron James, Stephen Curry, Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic, and Kawhi Leonard. Our reserves out east, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, first-time All-Star, James Harden, first-time All-Star Zach Levine, first-time All-Star Julius Randle, Ben Simmons, and then Nikola Vucevic rounds it out. Out west, we have Anthony Davis, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Chris Paul, and then first-time All-Star Zion Williamson. Now, of course, Kevin Durant, he's nursing a bad hammy at the moment, and he's not going to be playing. Then also Anthony Davis nursing a bad Achilles tendon. He's also not going to be playing. That means that Jason Tatum is moving into the starting lineup out east. He, his spot is going to be replaced by DeMontis Sabonis. And then out west, the opening is going to be replaced by Devin Booker, or as he prefers to be called, I guess, Book. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's one glaring omission from the team. Well, really, rather, there are several glaring omissions, which I understand because there's only 24 spots and there are too many good players. But one omission that is so egregious that it calls the, legitis- the legitimacy of the entire NBA into question. And that's my guy, Chris Middleton. Uh, really, I just want to take the opportunity to shine my small light on how good this player is per 36 minutes. Chris Middleton, he is averaging 22.2 points, 6.6 rebounds, 6.2 assists, 1.2 steals, shooting 50% from the field, shooting over 40% from three-point land, 43% to be precise, and then just a hair under 90% from the charity stripe. He's hitting 89.3% of his free throws. By the way, the only player in NBA history to average 20 points, six rebounds, six assists per 36 minutes while shooting 50, 40, 90, like my guy Chris Middleton here. Probably heard of him. Larry Bird. Uh, he did it one time. It was 1986. And are you going to tell me that Larry Legend, 30 years old in 1986, didn't belong in the All-Star team? I don't think so. Now, Chris Middleton, he's doing all of this on just a 24% usage. Uh, really not huge and in his minutes the bucks are doing awesome he's a plus 7.6 per 100 possessions in the minutes that chris middleton is playing but the really special thing about chris middleton is that he does all of this as just the second best player on the team and he understands that his role is just to be the secondary scorer and secondary facilitator also facilitator also while guarding the best wing on the opposing teams since Giannis is the top dog and he needs to keep his energy for offense but When Giannis sits, he's averaging 30.7 points per game, six rebounds, 6.6 assists, 1.4 steals, shooting 54% from the field, 42% from three, 94% from the free throw line. During those minutes, his usage obviously rises up over 31%. And the Bucs, even when one of the best players in the entire league is on the bench, there's still a positive because of Chris Middleton in his minutes without Giannis. The Bucs are still a plus 3.3 points per 100 possessions. So, Chris Middleton, hidden superstar? 
Yes, absolutely. And it is a crime that Chris didn't make the All-Star team as a reserve. In fact, I was listening to the Greatest of All Talk podcast the other day with Ben Golliver and Andrew Sharp. Ben Golliver called his omission from the roster a war crime, and not to minimize actual war crimes, but that's truly what this is. Now, I understand that the fans didn't vote him as a starter. I was never expecting that to happen. It's never going to happen. I even understand when he doesn't appear in the top 10 vote getters for the front court in the East because most fans are casuals and they probably don't know much about him. But when the coaches don't vote Chris Middleton as a reserve, that says more about them than it does Chris Middleton. And I think fines need to be levied. And I'm now going to be watching the All-Star game under protest. <sighs> Let's take a look at the chart. We've got all of the auctions for Chris Middleton's 2012 Prism PSA 10 rookie card from over the past two and a half months. So that's stretching back to a week before the regular season began. There were 11 auctions in that time frame, and this particular card is up 24% during that time. Now, I know we're talking Prism base here, and that's certainly not the most exciting card around. But first year of Prism was quite a bit different than it is now, and there are only 155 PSA 10s of this particular card available. So this is actually incredibly rare by today's standards. Now, I understand all the reasons why Chris Middleton is generally overlooked and not highly sought after in the card market. Trust me, I do understand all that, but it's still incredibly annoying. And as you can tell, I am livid. Actually, you know what? I have spent over $120 on Chris Middleton cards, and I'm calling it right now. He's going to be the hottest in-demand player in the market in just a couple months. So invest now while you can. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. So that's why I'm mad. Now, I'm going to take a look at another all-star level player so I can cool it off a little bit over here. I know I'm overreacting. But... Pulling up first-time All-Star Zach Levine of the Chicago Bulls. Now, I'm not mad that he made the All-Star team and Chris Middleton did not since they weren't even up for the same position. So there's no overlap at all. Very happy for Zach Levine. His base prism is also a low population card with only 191 PSA 10s in existence. So again, extremely rare. No, not as rare as Chris Middleton's. And yes, they are currently auctioning off about 50% higher than Chris Middleton's prism rookie. I'll let you make of that what you will. We talked about Zach Levine a few weeks ago and about how much he has improved across the board, and it has been extremely encouraging all around. He certainly deserves to be in the All-Star game, in my opinion. That being said, I wouldn't call you crazy if you decided that right now is the best time to be selling your Zach Levine cards, and here's why. Levine is having the best statistical season of his career so far. He's only 25 years old, so that's not a surprise. He's averaging nearly 29 points per game, which is obviously elite scoring ability. Now, I've just pulled up a bar graph of the number of 20-point-per-game scores in the NBA from each year over the past two decades. As you can see, for most of the last 20 years, the number of 20-point-per-game scores in the league have generally hovered around the 15 to 25 players per year range. Uh, there was a bit of a lull around the 2011 to 2013 years, and I'm not sure why. And then with the advent of the three-point era in recent years, we've seen an uptick in 20-point-per-game scores, eclipsing 30 of them per year three times over the past five seasons. But this season, we've seen another leap. 36 different players are currently averaging at least 20 points per game, which is a level of scoring we've simply never seen before. Now, Levine is doing this on by far the best efficiency of his career. 
he's sporting an effective field goal percentage of 61.5%. Now, I usually in my videos like to talk in terms of true shooting percentage. Basically, the difference between these two stats is that effective field goal percentage does not include free throw shooting, whereas true shooting does include it. But for my purposes in this conversation, I'm not concerned about free throw shooting. So effective field goal percentage, 61.5%. Again, super elite. Now I've just pulled up the league average effective field goal percentage and how it's evolved over the years with the chart that's on the screen. Uh, just after the turn of the century, the league was shooting under 48% by that statistic. And unsurprisingly, as three-pointers have gradually increased throughout the years, we've also seen the league average increase right along the way, with this season being easily the most efficient scoring season the league has ever seen. Uh, let's overlay those two charts over one another so we can see how those numbers correspond. Uh, clearly, there's a great deal of correspondence between efficiency and overall high-level scores. Um, so, obviously, a good deal of all of this has to do with nerds ruining the game because apparently nerds are the only ones that like to see shots fall more often than not. I guess there's no accounting for taste. Uh, but as teams have begun targeting higher percentage shots, the points per attempt have also gradually increased year by year. However, I'm going to throw another line onto our chart, that line being the league average effective field goal percentage during the playoffs. And we see rather consistently each year, the playoff average is often well below the regular season average. And that's especially telling considering we're dealing with a much smaller sample size of teams, which leaves out the bottom half of the league from this calculation. And since winning correlates rather strongly with overall team scoring efficiency, we're looking at the teams that are regularly the most efficiently scoring teams in the league, and they're often not even coming close to the regular season average effective field goal percentage. Still with me here? My point is this. We clearly see an uptick in scoring efficiency, uh, scoring and efficiency every single year recently, and Zach Levine has profited from that. But we also see players shooting worse overall in, in the playoffs, and everyone knows why. It's because that's really when teams start playing the stingiest defense. Now, Levine's main calling card is clearly scoring at a time when more players are doing that than ever before. We're also in the middle of a season with a compressed schedule coming off a very shortened offseason. Scoring is up around the league in part because more players are missing games than ever before. And the players that are playing are just not expending as much energy on the defensive side of the ball. Perhaps you see where I'm going with this, but overall... It's impressive what Levine's doing, but it's not as impressive when you consider all of the present circumstances. Now, this is a bit of a straw man argument, but if the Bulls were to make the playoffs and Levine was faced with tighter defense and even double teams, I'm not sure it would be the same scoring output as we're currently seeing. And while Levine is assisting and rebounding better than ever before, he's not doing it at an elite level where he can rely on anything other than scoring to carry his game. And if that's taken away, there's just not much else going on here. He's still generally very bad on defense. So where does that leave him? If I were holding any Zach Levine cards right now, I'd be very happy that he's been scoring the way he has over the past month or so. It's raised his national profile tremendously. It got him to the all-star game and it's scaled up his card market all over. But in my opinion, 
it's a bit murky going forward. You know, he has one more year left on his current deal. And, and while I still think it's better for the Bulls to trade Levine, after seeing the fan excitement around Levine coming out of Chicago recently, I wouldn't be surprised to see them extending extending Levine with something approaching a max deal this offseason. And while that would be awesome for him and his family, I'm not sure it would age very well. And most likely many people would be poking holes in that deal right away from the jump. I don't know if all my future gazing is correct, but based on all of that, if you are invested in Zach Levine, I'd suggest capitalizing on his current hot market and selling, but that's just my opinion. I could always be wrong. Now, last up for today, we're going to do a bit of a pre-mortem analysis of the Boston Celtics. Celtics fans, you already know a lot of this and can skip forward a minute or so if you're tired of thinking about the current Celtics iteration. They are currently sitting at 500 with a 17-17 and record after losing six out of their last 10 games, and the feelings coming out of Boston are rather bleak. Now, there are plenty of reasons for this. Maybe near the top of that list is that Kemba Walker has aged really rather quickly. He's 30 years old, which obviously isn't old, old, but he is quickly becoming a rather sizable net negative with a net rating of minus five. He's averaging his lowest scoring output in six years, and he's having the third worst shooting season of his career. And the only season in which he got to the line fewer times than this one was his rookie season. Frankly, he's just gotten old. A big part of that equation is his knee, which did need a stem cell injection. Uh, clearly, that slowed him down a bit. He has looked quite a bit better the past few games, so maybe he's finally getting his legs under him, getting healthy. I guess only time will tell there. Another big reason is that they are unable to do anything to replace Gordon Hayward. Obviously, he was never quite the same in Celtic Green due to that terrible ankle injury in his first game in Boston, and he hasn't didn't really have a healthy season in those three seasons. But when he played last year, he became a very important piece for the Celtics team. And then he left for Charlotte in the offseason, leaving Boston with nothing but a large trade exception, which they can't even really use because they're hard capped due to signing Tristan Thompson and only have about $4 million in space to operate. And that's also another reason for the current state of this team. Uh, this past offseason, the loan adjustments were the signing of Tristan Thompson and Jeff Teague, which admittedly looked fine at the time, but they've just turned into almost absolutely nothing for the Celtics. Thompson is averaging under eight points and eight rebounds in just under 23 minutes per game. Hasn't been particularly helpful overall. Jeff Teague has given them just six points and two assists, and he's only playing 18 minutes per night, getting outplayed by a number of guards on the roster. Now, with Thompson's lackluster play, the center rotation is lacking between him and Daniel Tice. And because of some of the other injuries around the roster, they're often playing together in a Twin Towers lineup. Also, Marcus Smart has been out the entire month of February. He hopes to return after the All-Star break sometime in the second half of the season. He's a very important player on the Celtics team. So, frankly, there's just a lot that's going on, which has brought this team to the current 500 level of play. But... A big amount of the blame is falling on their two young stars, which is certainly deserved at this juncture, but I think it's maybe being a bit overblown in my opinion. However, both Tatum and Brown have been pretty bad in the month of February. Tatum averaged 24 points, nearly seven rebounds, and also five assists during the month, and Brown averaged just over 22 points, nearly six rebounds, and four and a half assists during that month. All told, that all looks pretty good overall, obviously down a little bit from the regular averages, but pretty good still. But 
Tatum's been doing it while shooting under 40% from the field and under 32% from the three-point line. So his shot has just not been falling at all from anywhere. And the Celtics were a negative six points per 100 possessions with Tatum on the floor. Brown has been similarly bad, 44% from the field, just 31% from beyond the three-point arc. And the Celtics have been a negative 12 points per 100 possessions during his minutes. Because of all this, Jason Tatum's Prism Silver PSA 10 rookie card has slipped 23% since the beginning of the new year. Browns has only slipped about 3%, which is clearly not very bad, but in what has been his best season so far, you'd really have liked to see consistent growth rather than a relatively flat market. So there's lots of reasons that are out of their control, but the market is seeming to blame them, and even other players are starting to blame them. There was one anonymous player that leaked a quote to the media the other day saying, Tatum and Brown can't be your superstars. They only do things to help their game. They don't get anyone else easy shots. All they know how to do is score. Look, I get it. Players are frustrated. Everyone wants someone to blame. And the easiest targets are going to be the young wings that get all the credit when things are good. But they're wings. They shouldn't be expected to have to create that much for their teammates. They're not Chris Middleton. What's that? Oh, Tatum and Brown are all-stars and Middleton's not? Who decided that? Couldn't be me. Joking aside, these two are only 22 and 24 years of age. They're both certainly having the best basketball of their careers still ahead of them. Treating these two as long-term holds as you should be doing, this is a good time to buy in. I don't know that the Celtics are going to be able to right the ship enough to contend in the East this year. If they do, all of these prices will change quickly. But even if they don't, you have a really nice dip to buy and buy at the minute at the moment and then hold long term, trusting that as these guys get older, they'll continue to improve and really carry the Celtics to some nice places. All right, that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sorry for jumping on my soapbox and ranting about Chris Middleton through all of it, but I'm a Bucks fan. I love the guy and uh I think it's an interesting look at how uh, different factors affect our card market prices. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you giving me your time. We'll see you again next week.